Watch this. Talking about Seven Mile Beach and the superintendent, there's a guy called Anthony Tugut, whose great-grandfather and grandfather played in the Opens at Hoylake. No way. And then his father was, a, I think he was a leading amateur in the 54 Open that Thompson won, but he was one of four, the four Australians who won the first Eisenhower Trophy at St Andrews. Is that right? Bruce Devlin, Doug Backley, Bob Stevens, and... Peter Tugut, who was still playing in my time, tremendous player. But he, um, he, Jones was talking to him. Jones admired his game and they had a conversation and he was quick enough to grab Mackenzie's map of the old course and have Jones signed it, <laughs> which was pretty cool. And he, it's now in the clubhouse at Royal Hobart, which is. Incredible little piece of history. Yeah, it was. It was very cool. We should say we're sat at the moment in the. Yesterday I heard it referred to as the CDP compound. <laughs> I think that seems like a pretty good definition. Um, just back from Royal Liverpool. So we, we're obviously up here for the 151st Open Championship. And if the voice sounds like it's gone ever so slightly, that's probably because it's the Sunday and we're, we're, we're coming off the back of a really big week. But Clayton, you've had an even bigger few weeks, haven't you? You've been on the road, you've been in Scotland, you've been all over. What's the, what's the last few weeks travel look like for you? Well, we started. Well, I started in Fort Worth. Went and stayed with Sue O for LPJ player for a couple of days, three days. We played at Shady Oaks, where she's a member, Ben Hogan's club. So yeah, we yeah, yeah. Took out when Hogan died. He left all his clubs to Mike Wright. The, it was not the club pro there anymore, but he still kind of is. But he was a longtime club pro there, and so all Hogan's clubs are all there. Including the play around with them, little sort of. You go and take his driver out. There's a whole bunch of them there. That no roll and bulge, and it's like hitting a barge pole. <laughs> <laughs> and his irons were all flat, very flat. You know, sort of three, four degrees flat. And he was a genius. He there's a, there's a metal hybrid club there that he made in the 60s or 70s. You know, it's amazing no things he did over there. It, was a, it wasn't there last this time. Last time I was there, there was a belly putter with two grips on it belly putter which he'd made you know decades ago and yeah way before it became popular yeah so he um he was a he was a genius so we shady oaks then we went to uh indian hill where mike and frank and the first time mike and frank and i were all in the same room together is that like a cult course or something or indian hill's a cult and donald ross course in right. chicago so we've done a plan for them which is was where bill murray and his brothers catered as kids Okay. So I expect there's a little bit of Indian Hill in Caddyshack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's a, it's a, it's a good Can course. you see that when you're there on the ground? Is it like you see a little, <laughs> you see there's like shades of the film. <laughs> a little bit. You, you watch the caddies catting for the women out there. I was like, it was, you can, you can see the lines, yeah. Um, beautiful clubhouse, cool club, very good. Yeah. So, And then Mike and I went up to Michigan, uh, Traverse City. Mm-hmm. where we played Crystal Downs me for the second time I played that in 2002 and then we played Kingsley which is Mike's new course up there which was tremendous yeah, nice. yeah I was it was I was 
well, I wasn't surprised how good it was, but it was it was amazingly good. So that was yeah. fun. And then we came over, and I came over here, and Katie for Elvis Smiley and the qualifier at Deal, yeah, which he managed to miss, not comfortably, but he was never really in it. And then uh, Royal Dublin. Mm-hmm. You've had a huge piece of work going on yeah. there, having the full full, yeah, Royal, full renovation of the bunkers and stuff. Yeah, Royal Dublin's People good. People seem really happy with it as well. Yeah, it's good. Oh, yeah. Royal Dublin's good. There's, there's more you can do there, I think, but it's a it's yeah. a good course. And then Spay Bay, which was a... Frank had undersold Spay Bay, how good it was, but... Um, we were Mike, joking about this, weren't we, in the garden, and... yeah. Uh, Chairman Ed said to you know you know Frank was sort of quite happy with Spay Bay, but Clates was in awe, and I suppose that's the great thing about you guys as a collective is you each have slightly different views on the merits of different sites. Yeah, and, so and Mike, you challenge each other, yeah. right? Yeah, and Mike and I were three quarters of the way down the first fairway. Like this thing's unbelievable. The contouring was incredible, and there were some bad holes there, a few, not a lot, but and there's a lot you could do with it, but it's. Yeah there's no such thing as a hidden gem anymore everyone knows these and no one's heard of this place I mean I spoke to John Huggard about it he said yeah he said Brooks Kepka won a challenge tour event up there turned out it was Spay, Spay Valley, Valley. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. the McDonald the, Hotel place Huggy's kind of the guru golf rider and even he didn't know about it so <laughs> but it's yeah it's I think if we can do a good job there that place will turn into something really cool and special and um We've got we've got a plan to reverse it as well, so it'd be fun to if we can make that work. It's it'd be really good. It's a bold plan, isn't it? Twenty two hole reversible yeah. golf course yeah. for the Lynx Golf Club or Lynx Dow guys, yeah. which is a membership founded with NFTs. Like if, if there's a way of pushing something with this where it can feel a bit different, it feels like that's your brief to go and go for it, right? Yeah. So it must be. Is it pretty liberating working with in that sort of setup where people are really up for innovation? or well it's different I mean Ryan at the Addington's a little the same because there's no he is the committee hmm. so you know it's nice when you when you've you've got one point of contact and he's committed to making the course as good as it can be and it's the same at Spay Valley we can Spay Bay we can do pretty much what we want I think and I think we can make it really good it's covered in gorse through the middle of it so getting rid of the gorse will once that's gone we'll see more than we saw when we're there, it grows like wildfire, though, doesn't it? Gorse out there, and you, yeah, the thing you is really it just properly get very quickly the court, the course is choked. But you know, coming back to it, that structural model with you know Clayton, Drees, and Pont. We should say we have got Mike sat on the left without a mic because he was threatening to go shortly. We should should we put a, a, a mic in Mike's hand? Yes, I think we should. Yeah, we should put a mic in Mike's hand. We'll resume when we do that. That good? Testing, testing. We've got you loud and clear. Welcome to the cookie jar podcast mike as well so thank you nice to we, be here yeah absolutely well, we've had a great fun week we've been chatting all week anyway over a glass of rose or a cold beer or a gin and tonic um but you were earwigging on the conversation i suspect the, the structural model of having the three partners within clayton Drees and pont is it kind of like how the old days of the golden age greats would have been working in so much as a school of architects that are almost challenging each other a little bit rather than having one sort of you know, evangelical view on the way golf courses should exist. Do you feel like that's kind of healthy among you guys and the partners? Uh, certainly. I think, I think we all bring something to the, 
you know, to the party. And we, th- we have the same philosophies, but we come to them from different backgrounds and things. And so that makes things more, a lot more collaborative. And how about this? How about that? Yeah. What do we do this? I don't like that. Why do you like that? You know, or something. And so you're, you're just, you're, you keep climbing to the top of the pyramid until you get to the peak, right? We've figured out all the issues and you have less, less problems, you know, more solutions, less problems. Yeah. We were in the, um, down at the Addington a couple of weeks ago. You're working on the, the lost green site, the restoration of the original 12th green site. Um, and sort of sitting there and talking it through with Frank and Ryan. And that was like a really, that was a really interesting day for me because you could just see the level of detail you guys go into when you're on a build. And I think you're often shielded from that because the, the golfer usually just sees the finished product when they, when they see it. They don't actually see the debate that goes on and, you know, how much kind of attention to detail there is. So, mm-hmm. and seeing you guys with Frank kind of just, just hashing that out, that's all, all pretty fascinating, really. Yeah, it's, um, you know, that's part of that collaborative process. And Ryan's really involved as an owner, manager, um, different than a lot of other places. Mm. So it gives us, gives us feedback, gives him feedback. Um, so that's, all owners are involved in some, in some way or another, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Um, and sometimes those owners are, you know, big committees and committees are, as Mackenzie always said, you know, mm. it should be an odd number and less than three. <laughs> so, so, so we've got that at the Addington, which is good. And, um, uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, we're all working towards the same goal. We want it to be the best that it can possibly be yeah. and, and how you, how you get there. So, you know, and that's, that's fun too. And that's what Clates and I do, you know, on seven mile mm. We're you know, we're constantly till the, till the seed hits the ground, we're constantly tweaking just the last little bit to make it, you know, to make it the best that it can be. How much time are you guys spending at Tasmania together working on seven mile? Well, I'm, I'm, you know, pretty much most of the last year and a half I've been there and Clates mm. comes down every other week pretty much. So, you know, for two, three days, depending on the situation. Um, and that's, um, that's something that, you know, works out, um, you know, really, really good. And because he 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 has the the sort of um, pleasure of not being there every day and seeing everything happen and coming in with a fresh set of eyes and going, okay, being oh I like that that's cool you know what about this over here? Yeah, so I mean you you almost have different roles on site, correct? You've got different things that you because I suppose. You know, it's like a strange dynamic, isn't it? You both kind of want the best thing, but you'll see things differently. So you just have to manage that creatively amongst the two of you, right? And you're working for one guy, aren't you? We're working for... Yeah, so, I mean, Matt's only ever seen a one-page routing map. He's never seen... There's been nothing more than that. That's it. Yeah, well, there's an irrigation plan, but, you know, there's, there's essentially a one-page routing map. So we're, we're just... I mean, we know what we're doing in terms of where we where the holes are going and what the concepts are for the holes. But you know, Mike's there every day, so you know the holes come out of the ground really, and you see different things. And we built the tenth hole and left it for a while, and the the, bunk, the massive bunker filled in, and we finished up. We didn't we didn't change the concept much, but we you know the bunker's a third of the size that it was because we just looked at it and thought about it, and it blew in anyway. And we built a quite different bunker there than we we started off with, so. Things you you know you can do when you've got one 
single client who is happy to go with our judgment generally and you can change things like that it's not like you've got to go back to the membership and say well this bunker was x but now it's going to be y mm. it's in a different spot and you know you can just go ahead and do that stuff which is makes it easy yeah because you're just managing the relationship and the yeah. client then aren't you without getting bogged down in large presentations yeah i guess is that similar to what you see i mean you've done a lot of work in america haven't you mike with you know recently and and kind of more, i suppose you know throughout your career a lot of it's been been in the u.s and stuff is that kind of similar do you find that the working with committees to be a bit of an obstacle there and versus proprietary developments does that you know is that sort of something that you've found as well well, every every project is different. Every project's the same. You have mm. to manage people and their expectations and things like that. So, a lot of what we do is educate our clients. You know, they. I could guarantee that every client that you know came in at the beginning and their perception of what we did and how we do it and what golf architecture was really about. Mm. I'm pretty sure that by the end of the process, they their their perception really changed a lot. Yeah, and that's um, you know. That's the advantage of the stuff like we're doing at Seven Mile, because um, Matt's there every two or three months, you know, for a fairly extended stay to do certain things and stuff like that. But he's, you know, we're talking with him a lot and things like that. So he's always amazed at you know what what's happened and you know we've evolved the hole and maybe you know it's not like there have been holes that we've probably built that you know he wasn't there. And we did the bulk of the building for it, but you know we we'd walked all the, we've walked all the holes with them and talked to a lot about them and things like that. But then he comes back and like he's like, "Wow, well, it's like even better than I thought it was going to be." You yeah. know, I, my my perception of it was different or something. And so, um, yeah, that's I mean it's a it's a it's an interesting you know. It's an the design's an evolution. We're bringing it out of the ground, and this is really great ground. So you're trying to respect that, and then you're also trying to make it functional, maintainable, sustainable long term. Yeah. And how you do that, and that involves making certain decisions. You know, that might not always be for you know shot value or this or that or something. But how do you get how do you just get people around? Mm-hmm. How do you get maintenance equipment around? So you start that with like is, a sort of a, the routing stays pretty set, but then when you're in there, things like the actual playing lines will change versus what you might have thought they would have looked like when you started breaking ground, right? Or you'll start to, tee locations will feel slightly different. I mean, what? give me an example of how that changes through the build process. Well, I mean, the general the general concept of the holes is there, and, and so those playing lines are probably, you know, they're still there. And, but we're probably adding other aspects to it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you know, that happens with a different T location or an option and stuff like that. And, you know, Clates is great about that. He's like, oh, there's a great T over here. <laughs> Let's, what about I'm like, yeah, another bloody T to build. Bad flow, <laughs> doesn't work. You know, it's, a, it, it's back and forth, not good. You know, you got to step back. <laughs> is it hard and, to do that? Does it, can you only get that with wisdom and experience to be able to go, I'm not going to build a sick T shot there because actually it's it's a crap crap transition is that is that the sort of that's hard to get to whereas a younger sort of or when you've sort of you know a bit more fresh and you just want to have an impact i can imagine the desire to just have a sick tee shot is quite hard to walk by yeah but there's a lot of sick tee shots so the thing is there is like you can always you could always build it later if you want but you know we want to try and get 
we'd like to get to you know the finished product and keep it that way and have it all work together but a lot of times those sometimes those those t's you know they end up working into it like looking at all of that and saying here's 45 different t's or whatever mm-hmm. um you know that's maybe a little more than normal but uh so um the eighth the long green on eight evolved and shifted a little bit left and it and it shifted for the better for the approach for the shot that you know matt and clates were talking about going in and and what i felt was was doable to build and how how to do that and what that did was all of a sudden this really cool tee that clates had been looking at for a year basically he's i'm like we can build that tee now because that works really well you know only certain guys are going over there we Mm -hmm. still got the other tee so but now the transition to there is is sort of seamless and it's really cool one thing we almost never do in Australia is have tees off the line of the main tee. We, pretty much every course, the tee just goes, there's, there's one in front of the other. Yeah. And over here in England, you see you know, tees at Sandal, different places, where there are tees in much different places that change the hole quite a lot. It happened a bit at Bamboogle, but there are lots of different tees at Seminole Beach that really change the shot a lot. Yeah, with the using of the angle, right? Yeah. You know, and I think... Um yeah, yeah, and the eighth hole, for example, well, the ninth hole, you come off. You, there were two greens at the eighth. So if you come off the short green to the right, the ninth's quite a long par four with a much different tee shot than if you play the left green, the, the long green, and there's a short par four. So it's there's some variety in there, which is a it was a cool thing about Thomas's plan at LA Country Club, where he had this course within a course thing and. Surprising golf didn't adopt that. Would have been a much more interesting. Well, it would have been a more interesting game if there'd been we'd embraced the course within a course concept and yeah. had holes that had more flexibility. You know, you, you build a long par three that you can play as a great short par four from a back tee and things like that, which were, you know, as I said, it was it was surprising that concept didn't really catch on. Well, it's a bit of a hipster comment, but I mean, the the the, the concept of trying to use par too much to determine how the hole should feel is a bit kind of crazy when you think about it isn't it i mean the you know what they've done this year with the 10th hole at royal liverpool you know just maintaining that and just 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 saying it's it's a it's par four now it's not a par five it doesn't matter it's better than extending it back to maintain the par yeah. status and i mean i suppose curious to get both of your takes really on the on the major championship venues this year really i feel like um i feel like lacc have not been there looked really really good like i think the, the work that shack and, and the guys had done with the course that you know i felt like that was that was really successful. I think Hoy Lake's a great venue. Um, yeah, Penny, for your thoughts, I guess. Well, I'd love to give that to you, but I got to catch my train. So thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. <coughs> we knew it was going to be a short time appearance, <laughs> a short time cameo role, Mark. But thanks so much, and we'll get you back onto the pod in due course. Sounds good. Thanks. I, I played LA. I played with Shaq actually. I, um, did I play with Shaq or I walked? I can't remember. Um, I played it before they changed it and after, and it's much better, obviously. Is it? Yeah, it's really yeah. good. It's a really good course. Fantastic. Much different course and much different venue in terms of the gallery. Mm. This is a, this is, everyone's here. Yeah. That <laughs> sounded like there was a. I think it was really sad seeing that, actually, yeah. with the, with the yeah. US Open. Yeah, it seemed like it was a weird kind of crowd there and yeah. quite small and restricted. And the club bought up a bunch of tickets, so. A lot, you know, this is this is the open. People can, everyone can plan it, and everyone can come watch it, pretty yeah. much. So it's um, how many opens did you play? I want to say it's like 
and played in nine, nine opens. Yeah, nine opens. That was fun to play in. Yeah, it was a. And which ones on the on the sort of, I guess, quote unquote, the modern rotor, did you not play within those nine years, or did you play pretty much every one? I never played Birkdale, and I never played Litham. Okay. And Carnoustie wasn't in it then. Okay. So I played, and I played three at Sandra. So it was yeah, I played. A, played Turnbury when it was a crazy one that Norman won. Where it was you know, Turnbury in '86 and Carnoustie in '99 were the two sort of outliers in terms of sensible setup they were both narrow and incredibly different that was a crazy setup was it yeah it was narrow and it was i mean i shot 18 over and finished 45th or something (laughs) (laughs) it was was incredibly difficult but didn't norman shoot 65 or something norman shot 63 which was a ridiculous round three pride the last on friday and he, no, Greg had the thing about that tournament. He won by, shot even par, won by three, I think, from yeah. Gordon Brand. And he played in the worst weather. He got he got the worst weather the first day. He played in the middle of the morning the first day. It was horrendous. And it got really bad late on Saturday. He came, I think he, he might have even hit two drivers to the 18th. It was like he had a bad <laughs> drive out to the right. It was, it was so, that was a remarkable performance given exceptional he, given he the played through ball, the worst it? of the weather yeah in two of the days yeah so but 63 was a occasionally you see a score that no one in the field can imagine how did someone shoot that yeah i mean you see lots of low scores you know yeah i can see that you can see john ram shooting 63 at hall yes okay it was doable there was you know, the weather was perfect he's a terrific player yeah that was a doable score but 63 at Turnby was not doable you look at it and go, I don't, I don't see where where the where the shots go to make that happen. Yeah, you could see sixty. I mean, a few guys shot sixty-seven that day, but I think there were maybe eight or ten guys broke seventy. But sixty-three was off the charts, crazy. I didn't know eighty-six was a crazy setup. Actually, obviously, Carlos yeah. D ninety-nine was a. You didn't play that one, did you? No, but they, they were. I remember the fourteenth hole, the first day was into the wind, narrow fairway. This is Turnbury. In yeah, Turnbury. <clears throat> excuse me and if you hit it in the rough the ball would go in the rough wouldn't run anywhere and it was so thick you were pitching out essentially sideways you couldn't get on for three it was like 470 yards or something into the wind Wolsey made a birdie late in the day a driver one iron but I remember what I played late that first day got a lucky draw and it was um, I remember watching guys just hitting it in the rough and just hacking it out sideways and they couldn't get on for three hmm. so there was a, it was just a pile of double bogeys on that hole and what have they done with the setup that had made that the case was that just was it just very very brutal it was just no it was narrow with yeah. thick grass and no one hit that i think that what was that silly hole that was gone now peter thompson slaughtered that hole at, um in an interview once at ninth or the tenth the ninth yeah, well, the one with the hogsback fairway I mean, almost literally no one hit that fairway the first day. It was a big crosswind. And, you know, there might have been literally 10 or 15 guys who hit that fairway out of 156 mm. players. It was, you know, it was a bad hole. It was, um, it's gone now, isn't it? I think, didn't they change that? Yeah, I, so I've not played it since they've I changed they, it all around. they changed that hole quite a lot. But a lot of the stuff around the turn has been reconfigured, hasn't yeah. it? I think from my understanding yeah. around the lighthouse, yeah. including buying it and all sorts. Yeah. Where was your favorite i mean I, I know in fact i've got to wall that back because i already know you're going to tell me it's the old course but yeah. outside of the st andrews 
Where was your favourite playing? Uh, like Muirfield in, I played Muirfield in 92. Muirfield's a really good course, isn't it? Like a really good course, <laughs> yeah. properly good. Yeah. So it's kind of Australia's, it's Scotland. Well, Australia, Royal Melbourne is Australia's Muirfield, really. You know, it's the best. Um, it's the closest thing to Royal Melbourne that's given that one's a tree-ish lined sandbelt course and one's a links course there they kind of remind me of each other a little bit mm. you know they're kind of but millfield's quite penal from the t isn't it you know that you know the depth and thickness of the rough you know it, it could almost be it could almost be water you know like the the yeah it it, was, it's it's that difficult but yet it, it's wasn't that way and i don't remember it being that so much like that in 92 that was a pretty that was a really good setup it was obviously you know when nicholas won there in 66 what he hit 17 yeah. drivers something it was no you know Doug Sanders one of the I want the hay concession <laughs> open. That was incredibly narrow, but um, I don't remember it. I thought it was just I don't remember the setup at ninety two. It just seemed like it was. It's an outrageously good golf course, but I just think today sensible and yeah. You know, I mean, fair is a horrible word, but because you don't equate links golf with people's perception of what's fair, which is why it's great because it's not fair and dealing with the unfairness of it's the challenge of it. And as John Rahm said in his press conference this week, it's unfair, but it, you can't say it's unfair because if it's unfair, it's unfair for everybody. So it becomes fair anyway. Yeah, yeah. The only thing that's really you can't deal with is the weather. You, know, you can have, you know, Nicholas in '64 with with Lima. Lima got the great draw, and Nicholas got the horrible draw, and was a mm. you know pile behind and almost caught up. So you, know, you you can't control the draw, but that that's the the inherent unfairness that comes with the Open is you get good draws and bad draws. Mm. How much have you seen the Open change in its events? I mean, I, I you know, you, you're not, you're obviously a, you know, hugely successful player, but now working as an architect, you know, we spend much of the week, you know, hanging out at Wallace, a little bit about seeing the golf, and we've had a few drinks, things and stuff like this, but you're not kind of, you're not right in there with all the players and everything every five minutes, but you've still coming to this and seeing the open and then comparing it with Turnbury in 86 and stuff like it must feel like shit this thing's really moved on well it was always big yeah, the open was always did it big. always feel really big yeah it yeah. always felt big it was you know, but it's bigger now than it ever was I mean it's a it's an industrial build out this mm. thing you know that looks like a you know it looks like a airport you know, the, the massive the buildings out there out there so obviously it's a huge commercial event i was at wimbledon the other day i hadn't been at wimbledon for since i was playing over here so 1996 and we used to, we used to go there every year because we knew a bunch of tennis players and we would go there and i hadn't been back there until this year and i was staggered how much bigger that was really yeah it was amazing so wimbledon feels like the open in terms of it felt big in 1992 but it just feels big it feels now. really big now and the open in 1992 felt felt really big but it's bigger now so it's um it's changed it's just changed it's bigger but it's still the open it's still this you know it still rains and it's still and the know, spirit is the same and, isn't it you yeah, see you know, the, the crowd with are, little kids and you know <clears throat> guys lying down and watching a bit of you yeah. know it's, it feels that it has has that same dna whereas like the us open we're talking about it there and it's just flooded with you know morgan stanley and golden yeah. Sachs people or whatever you know yeah. so it's a yeah, it's it's changed, but it stayed the same, which is how you want it. Really, I mean, the thing that you know, I'm sure they make a lot of money out of the merchandise tent. But I remember 
um, well, not buying. My wife went and bought it because my um, at Rob McEwen's bookshop, which is not there anymore, which was amazing, and I bought a copy of Golf Architecture that was Henry Cotton's copy. Wow! So it was signed by Mackenzie and essentially signed by Cotton because Cotton had written his name in it, and it was four hundred pounds. I thought, I'm not going to spend four hundred pounds this, but that's too expensive. So I told my wife about it, and she snuck in there and bought it to me for, as a Christmas <laughs> present, which was, which I'm glad she did because it's. Not, not that I would sell it, but it's worth an awful lot more than four hundred pounds now. Yeah. But you know, it's a really and you could buy that stuff at the in the, in the open tent. Yeah. I mean, you can't buy that now. No, and it's you know, it's it's a much. But if you want to buy a coffee mug, point. you can spend four hundred pounds on one of those. So you yeah. know, that's the yeah. that's the real irony of it all. Yeah. So um, it's, um, I mean, I haven't been into the. Well, like, is it what are they, the shop? Is it what? Are they, I think I, I think they've they've taken a bit of criticism this week for. Yeah, it's um, a very commercial, which yeah. makes I'm sure it makes them a lot of money, which they find a lot of great things for golf. But yeah, of course, the, the the exhibition tent was, you know, I doubt a player's gone in there this week. Maybe they have, but I doubt it. But you went into the exhibition tent in the in the in the opens that I played in. The, all the players were in there. Really? Yeah. Well, you could get a Pringle cashmere jumper. They sold Pringle cashmere jumpers for a hundred pounds. <laughs> so, you know, the players were in there buying, buying jumpers and. <laughs> Um, you know, all the club companies had stands in there, and you know, Rod McEwen had a great bookshop there where you could buy the coolest books. And I, the first confidential guide I bought, Tom Doak's book, the, the Maroon covered one I found in there. So, you know, it, it's just changed, it's just different, but yeah, you know, in some ways it's a pity, but I'm sure they make a whole hell of a lot more money out of the shop they have now than they did out of the exhibition tent, which was you know, of the, the 80s. Is there a world where some of the great open rotor courses struggle to stay relevant? You know, I'm thinking there the the stuff with the not a rollback, but you know the the change to the ball regulations that we're going to see, which feel pretty sensible. But we've because we've had this sort of delayed fuse of 20 years of the kids learning up playing Pro V1 and playing 460cc mm. heads. It's crept up on us quite quickly. And the, you know, Royal Liverpool absolutely stands up as a as a as a really good test of golf for the world's best. I suppose. Do you think that will continue to be the case, or can you think, you know, twenty, thirty, forty years in the future, you think we're going to be, you know, will we still see Muirfield, or we still see? Well, you don't have any. You're going to have to. Unless they, they're not going to go and build a whole lot of new open courses because you can't build in the dunes anymore. So they're going to roll the ball back and they have to roll the ball back and they're not rolling it back by enough but they'll roll it back by mm. more I suspect but you know the worst thing about you know caddying for, okay, for Elvis at Singports which is a brilliant course I mean I think maybe the best set of greens on any course in the world they're incredible really but the worst thing about well I didn't play I was caddying on that golf course and the worst thing about the old course at St Andrews is is horrendous walks back to these tees the championship tees it's awful there's no continuity there's no flow and it's all because the ball goes too far. Hmm. So the more golf got away from teeing the ball up within two clubbings of the hole, which was golf before Tom Morris built tees on the old course, in a sense that that's not, not the worst it's got, but that was the ideal. And the more you, the more you have these, and it's what you know, Mike's been drilling Matt and I about, the, the transitions from the greens to the tees at Seven Mile Beach, is, the longest one might be 15, 15 yards. So, and you can do that on a great piece of ground, and, and there are bits of ground, bits of land where you can't necessarily do that. But this this constant walking back to these ridiculous back tees that are only there because the ball goes too far. It's a it's 
you know, so that, that's the best thing about the rollback is that you, you can get rid of these stupid back tees that yeah. just so disrupt the continuity of the flow of the game and create these horrible walks. Would you change, would you, would you want to see players go back to persimmon? Well, it's, I would, but that's never going to happen. I, you know, I think that the head's gotten way too big. It, it was amazing to me that they had the fight with Carsten over the infinitesimal measurement on the grooves of those ping eye two irons which you know there wasn't what was that tra- for people who don't know about that what was that so well Carsten because he bought out the ping eye two iron which was a great iron as I understand it I mean I played with that club the the grooves were the edge of the grooves were ripping the ballada balls up and so he rounded off the edge of the groove to stop that happening and then the argument was the groove is now illegal because the measurement, the distance between the grooves was yeah, it's wider reduced, because it was rounded it was reduced, in. Yeah. yeah, so you know there wasn't a track man, so we didn't know what the, the what the spin rates were and how much difference they were really making. Kelka Vecker hit a show out of the rough at the Honda Classic, and Nicholas and Watson went nuts because it spun back, and this is outrageous, going to ruin the game. <laughs> so there was a huge argument about the grooves on the, on which, looking back, <laughs> was a spins was a double edged sword, isn't it? Because you can have it could be really helpful, but it can also be hugely destructive. And yeah, it was it was it, they were terrific out of the rough because it reduced the flies. Sure, but you know, when you consider what's happened since, I mean, they're arguing about literally, you know, the width of a human hair, or perhaps a little more, but whatever, but nothing relatively. And the driver went from the persimmon driver or that early horrible tailor-made metal wood, which was tiny. To what it is now and there was no no one's questioned it i mean you know when that great the greatest big bertha or the the one that came out after the great big bertha which everyone thought was enormous i mean it looks like a three wood now <laughs> and they should have said or that tightest nine seven drive five driver that tiger used a beautiful driver they should have said that's it you can't make that's it any bigger than that and of course with the bigger head came the longer shaft and the lighter shaft and the metal changed into whatever they make them out of now this composite thing so it's you know, as Adam Scott said the other day, the driver's gone from being the hardest club in the game to, in, in the game to hit to the easiest club. Mm. So, of course, you know, this generation of players have grown up with a, a golf ball that doesn't spin and a, and, a, and a big-headed driver that's very forgiving. So they've all learned to swing it, you know, much differently than Peter Thompson or, you know, Dave Maher or Gene Littler or, the, you know, the guys, Graham Marsh, you know, the guys with a controlled swing that where, where hitting the ball straight was the... You know, it was a it was the prime skill in the game because that because if they didn't hit it straight, they were going into greens with middle and long irons out of the rough, which was not doable. You know, it's much more doable when you're going out of the rough with a nine iron or a wedge. And of course, the great players, you know, Nicholas and Palmer and Norman and Seve were and Sneed were were flushed it with persimmon and steel shafts but were hugely long for their time as well so that was why they were the best players mm. you know they had, but now they're you know they're all you know someone there was someone taking off yesterday and they said well he, he's a short hitter like there are no short hitters out there some guys are there's varying than, degrees of guys, huge hitters some guys are shorter than others but there are no short hitters out there <laughs> you know so it's um yeah so the so do you go back to persimmon well that's not realistic but and if they if they reduce the size of the 
head of the driver and and the size of the sweet spot that would make a massive difference to the game and i think you know, it's a bigger question i wrote about it last week all these kids who want to be pros there aren't enough jobs even with live and the asian tour and the european tour and the pj tour and the corn ferry tour was it was the corn ferry tour and the canadian tour and the, there aren't there's still aren't enough jobs for mm. people to make a realistic living at the game and but the easier the equipment has become to use, the more and more kids think they're good enough to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the ball goes a long way off the tee and they hit lots of wedges into the greens and they shoot low scores. I can make it on the tour. So there are literally thousands and thousands of kids who think they can make it on the tour. And some of them do and lots of them don't. So it's led to the destruction of the amateur game. If, if, if the definition of the amateur game is Michael Benalek and Jay Siegel and Tony Gresham, you know, Australia's great amateur player who had families and lives and jobs. Yeah, medics and lawyers yeah. and people. Who, but it's not. The amateur game is. And they had a, they had a serious yeah. career, not a financial career, but a career in golf as a serious amateur player. And you went to amateur tournaments and there were lots of guys who were like that in Australia. That we, You know, it was... Phil Wood and Colin Kay and the you know, guys that no one will know have heard of, but you know they were they had proper jobs and family and played in the Eisenhower Cup and they were tremendous players. The amateur golf it doesn't look like that at all anymore. So it's just a bunch of kids preparing to be pros, and if they don't make it, they give up golf essentially. Mm-hmm. So why the equipment should be made more difficult to use, in my opinion, is that it would sort out much earlier than it does now who's good enough to punt it through and who's not. And the harder you make the equipment to use, the more you sort out the guys who are marginal, who would, would before they turn pro, would figure out, oh, I'm not good enough to play out here. But, the, but, but with the equipment, never been, it's never been easier to use. They all think they can make it. Yeah, of course. And some of them do, and most of them don't. So it's, the amateur game would be better. The game would be better if, it, if they went and got jobs and had, you know, rather than spending 10 years of life in a futile chase to make it on the tour. And, yeah. and of course, the golf courses would play better. You know, wouldn't, you, you could not keep extending tees back, and you could keep golf. And more of them would be relevant. You know? Yeah, you could, you could possibly even you know, have an event at Sunningdale. You know. Yeah, and and well, and you, and you can. I mean, what was the what was the sh- what's been the shot of the year this year? Not in a major championship. What, what did the shot of the year didn't come in a major championship this year? It was Rory's two under the yeah. par four at Scotland. I mean, yeah. that's what. You know, look at this shot. It's incredible. Well, how, you know, when was the last time? So I know someone I know asked Rory when the last time he hit a five iron to a par four, and he said, "I don't remember." So, you know, was is golf better or worse off for watching Rory McIlroy Rory McIlroy hit a two iron to a par four? I mean, it's unbelievable to watch that stuff. It's but, fascinating. You know, we see a preponderance of short iron shots. You know, and, and that's a generalisation, but the game was more interesting when it was the game was more interesting when you when players were hitting longer shots into the greens. And the other thing is, of course, when you're an architect, you're building greens. The green you build is relative, generally, to the the shot you're playing into it. So greens on the great open courses that were designed for mid and long irons, you know, the 18th at Muirfield or the 10th at Muirfield or the you know the 18th at Carnoustie, or you know, you can go through them all. The, the 15th at Lytham were there when you when you're hitting short irons into holes designed for middle irons. The balance is out. Yeah, because they're, they're they're bigger targets by definition because they were being asked to accept longer shots. So you start, and that, that, that's the problem with the players. 
you know, having opinions on the ball, really. You know, they're owned by the manufacturers and they've got no historical or, or architectural perspective on the issue. You know, it's how, how, how's this going to affect me? If they perceive that it's going to affect them negatively, then mm. they're against the ball rollback. So just don't listen to them because they're, they're, they're completely conflicted. Yeah, completely conflicted. And, and <laughs> Rory, is, Rory and Tiger are the only two that I've heard who've got a historical and an architectural perspective on, on, on the issue. Because they can almost and, sort of and, sit and, above it to a certain extent, sorry? really. They're so successful, they can almost... They well, can afford they're, they're to the only it. two guys who the manufacturers aren't yeah. going to say, shut up, don't talk about the ball. Because yeah, they, they've, they've got more weight, haven't yeah. they, than the, and, the manufacturers. Rory can articulate well his view and Taylor might not going to say Roy stop talking about the ball Rory because Roy's so rich he doesn't care about it. you know okay well I'll go and sign with or I'll just take a plain bag out there well not he's going to do that but yeah. you know Taylor might not going to say Roy stop talking about the ball no because it's a you know we were talking about the sustainability of golf yesterday and it's a big thing the r are on about and you know whilst it's not the most important thing in terms of sustainability it's you can't keep stretching these golf courses out. It's just more and more grass and more and more irrigation and more and more land. And, you know, and it's, it's more cost, which is also and that's and another cost. side of the sustainability <laughs> is that for it to be a sustainable game, it means more people can play it. They can access golf courses and they can enjoy them. And it doesn't need to cost that much money. You know, that, that's a key part of, you know, it's not, it's not all about how much water we're using. It's, yeah. you know, there's all sorts of aspects to sustainable golf. And, yes, well, yeah. Yeah. and, and the members that deal who, pay for all the new back tees they don't play on them no <laughs> they're only paying for them not playing them so it's anyway it, it'll i think it'll get solved you know i think they'll roll the ball back it won't be enough and it won't make as much difference as it should but, but, but it puts a, the plug in the start. hole yeah stops the leaky tap yeah and the, and the problem with the debate is it's an american-centric debate because you know the average not even the average american golfer almost every american golfer if you went out and polled every American tour player playing at Hoyt this week, you know, what do you guys think about the last time the ball was rolled back? They wouldn't, they would look at you with a blank face. What do you mean? The ball's never been rolled back. Well, mm. the ball was rolled back for the whole world in 19, in the early 80s when they got rid of the small ball. Well, every player in the world lost 25 yards by, by having to play the big ball. And it was a great change because it, apart from anything else, it spawned the, you know, the, the first open big ball open was 74 and within five years Sevi had won the open and, and within you know you had the great European generation which wouldn't I mean they were incredibly talented players but would it, would that generation of European players have been so successful if they'd been forced to switch back and forth from the small ball to the big ball the fact that well whack that they had to play the big ball which was more difficult to use and they didn't have to switch back and forward that you know they didn't have to they weren't playing the British PGA at Wentworth with a small ball mm. and then going over to the US Open three weeks later and playing a big ball. ball. So that, that, that was a hugely successful and wise decision. But there's not a player here who would realise that, well, you know, America forced on the rest of the world because they rejected the idea of a compromise ball. Because it's been unchecked for so long, hasn't it? I mean, I, you know, I, on holiday recently, a couple of nice bits of holiday reading. I really enjoyed reading The Links by Robert Hunter. I thought that was yeah, a, it's great. It's a fabulous book. book. Yeah. And it's amazing how much of that stuff, which I think was written in about 1920, yeah. um, how many of the things he's discussing. Principally, there's a lot of talk about lengthening of golf courses, yeah. for example. <laughs> that's that, Nothing's changed in 100 years there. 
Um, well, they had to lengthen the golf course, but the game. Well, you know, no, but the, the, you know, the, the, the ball like got the same better. same debate. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Well, yeah, and and for the longest time, the game was in once the steel shaft came out and, and better golf balls in the 30s and 40s and 50s. The game was had there was a great scale to the game for yeah. a, for uh, until the last 20 years, and it's completely out of scale now because the the ball's completely distorted all the dimensions and intentions of the golf course. Yeah, and you touched on it earlier because one of the things that you know comes up in in the links by Robert Hunter is he talks about the, the premise behind that book, as I understand it, was that it was there to assist and provide a good reference point for people building golf courses in a period of time mm. where there was lots of golf being built, and to tr- try try and provide some resources to help people. So it talks about things like if you're building a shot that's going to be accepting an iron shot from 180 or 200 mm. yards, the green needs to be bigger. And if you're going to be building a green that's going to be taking it in from 100 yards, it needs to be smaller. And if it's a punch bowl green, then you can have it, you know, shorter because it'll collect in. If it's concave, it'll need to be bigger. And it talks about all these different concepts that, like you say, I think 30, 40 years of heavy commercialism, it's left golf courses, you know, vulnerable and and the the development Mm. of the game has become unchecked the other the other bit of holiday reading i was going to signpost was there's a there's a publication we have over here called golf quarterly i don't know if you ever receive it it's a really nice piece david shaw stewart um who's actually a recent podcast guest he owns try golf club over on the on the far west coast and he wrote a brilliant piece about the ongoing debate with the ball principally the small and big ball and Mm. It's a, it's a wonderful article. If people can get their hands on the latest golf quarterly, they will absolutely enjoy it. Um, you're going to try. Is he going to try? Ed, you can pick the microphone up and say, I've been eavesdropped on by the chairman here. Sorry. Um, very briefly, Clates was inv- invited to try by the owner and then COVID hit. To try for what? What? Joke. Oh, sorry. I missed <laughs> try the joke. golf club. Oh, yeah, so he was yeah. in tr- invited to try. He was invited and we accepted and he was going to, I tried to explain to him where Try was, and it's not exactly next door to Melbourne. <laughs> and um, he was going to go, and then COVID hit. And so you do have the invitation to go. And I'm, I know we, this time we got you to the other side of Scotland, yeah. the Wilds, but we will get him there. So it's on the West Coast somewhere, is it? So it's basically up near... Um, so when we went, we went up to Harris and the Outer Hebrides. Mm. And as you're coming up out of the Mullican Tire, it's kind of up close near to Fort William, probably about an hour west. Okay. So it's right by Malig. Um, it is, you know, talking about sustainable golf and stuff like that. It is, it is an, a super, super place. You've been, haven't you, Ed? I haven't, but I've had lots of reports from Sam, and obviously Sam bombarded us with photographs. And mm-hmm. I want to get there, so I'm hoping I'll be able to jump on the same trip with Clates when we go. It's magical. Um, I have one one question. Uh, we we are we spend a bit of time, but we're going to be hanging out. I think at Addington next week. You'll be bored of the sight of me. We've been spending time at Wallasey on Monday. The Open Championship is at Hoylake. We had a fantastic podcast that we did, which remains the biggest regret, the one that an SD card failed, which we recorded at Blackwell Golf Club. Is England the most underrated golf destination in the world? It is by people who underrate it. <laughs> which are, Great answer. Which are um, Australians who invariably do Ireland and Scotland and don't do enough of England. And if they do England, they do saying down the Swinney Forest and the Berkshire and they don't go to Woking or Wolverston or the Addington or or Woodley or Moortown or Ganton or Woodhall Spa or, you know, Royal Wellington, Newmarket or, you know, all those 
I mean, there's a sitting down a dock, there's a, there's a list as long as your arm of Royal Ashdown Forest and there's so much amazing golf here and so much variety. I mean, that's it. It's the breadth you know, and variety in, in, is crazy. In, in Ireland and Scotland, there are, there's no great inland golf. I mean, we played Glen Eagles at the Scottish Open, which I assume is the best inland course in Scotland. Never played Blair but and it was great fun. We loved playing. It was a great week. It was fantastic. But essentially, all the golf is around the coast. Same, yeah. same in Ireland. You wouldn't go to Ireland to play Mount Juliet, but you go there to play Port Marnock and County Down and Port Rush and La Hinch and Belly Bunny and all that, cool, all that cool stuff. So there's English golf has got the variety that Scotland and Ireland don't have, and the and the variety is extraordinary. And it's in such a small area and it's accessible i mean america is massively big and there's great golf in america more great golf in america than anywhere probably do you think probably yeah but it's not accessible and it's you know there's a the geography of the country makes it not a doable trip yeah for an australian for example and even if you can't get access it's seriously expensive still. yeah you know it's like Rand morris had said in a podcast like he said you know, he said, I can't afford to play free golf in America because you know, the caddy's 150 and the, you know, it's just... Yeah, and you're going to do so, the merchandise, you've got to keep flying everywhere, hotel, rent yeah. cars. Mind you, it's, I'm amazed at how expensive it is to play golf here now. I mean, the green fees are in there. So, which is why you go and sneak out, you go and seek out the not-so-well-known ones. Mm. But, you know, you, and for an Australian, for example, you can fly to Heathrow, jump in a rent car and you can do England in... You, know, you can drive around the country and you can see all the great golf. You, you can't see it in two weeks because there's too much of it. So you can see a lot in two weeks, but if you came here for six weeks, you could play a tremendous golf course every day and have an amazing trip. And it, and it's accessible. I mean, you can't get on Augusta or essentially Cypress Point or the National Golf Links or you can get on Pearl Beach for $1,000, but it's, um, you know, there are so many clubs in America that are, inaccessible to the average golfer but you can and play. there's very few here and if you get most places in a couple of hours you can play you know you, you can get on and, you know so it's and you can get on in Australia you can go to Australia you can play in a golf you can play Royal Melbourne if you want it's going to cost you 750 Australian dollars but you can play mm. and you know it goes down from there and by the standard by, by, by the standard of green fees here it's Australian golf's not that expensive and you go to Bamboogle for 120 25 Australian Is that dollars. right? Yeah. Wow. So Seven Mile Beach will be the same. And it's so you can play lots of great golf in Australia. For, but Australia doesn't have, we have nowhere near the depth of golf that you have in Britain. Our, our good courses are tremendous. But yeah, we were talking about this like our 50th in GB&I yeah. or whatever would, or, or England or whatever would, would represent a much stronger tail than the 50th well, yeah, in us. And, and your, your 100th course is much better than our 100th course. Yeah. Now, I mean, our 50th course now is pretty good. A lot better than it was 40 years ago, but you know, the 100th best course in Australia is like not remotely close to the 100th best course over here. The 100th best course over here is really worth playing. Isn't it strange, though, we're talking in rankings, and half the problem with the ranking system in England is that, like you say, we will then gravitate to saying, well, Birkdale, Royal Liverpool, Sandwich, Deal, and these are really expensive golf courses to go and play. What is the future for that, in your opinion? I mean, is the best thing that we've seen so far the Doak scale? Is that the best way of objectively measuring courses in a way that doesn't just just measure the the tier one the kind of trophy venues yeah it is because for those who don't understand that it's well no or know about it it was a, it was a ranking of from zero to ten for people who were interested in architecture who wanted to go and see really interesting stuff and it's it's 
awfully accurate, I think. You mm. know, I've, Tom Ramsey was the Australian journalist who got one of the original 40 copies of that book because he looked after Tom when he came to Australia when he was a kid. And he, Tom would print these things in his newspaper column every week. There'd be one of the rankings. And I was like, well, this guy knows what he's talking about. And he got Australian golf, you know, absolutely right. You could argue about a point here or there, but, you know, it's, a, it's the best ranking of Australian golf courses. It's much better than any magazine list of them. Yeah, and it's... So, so, so it's, you know, but he wrote the book for people who were travelling. Yeah, would, say a two-hour drive. You, yeah. you drop everything and play yeah. this, you know. Yeah, who, who would read that every new golf course was great and you have to go and see it and they would go there and, well, that wasn't very good. I, I spent all that time and money and going to see a golf course that well, I was told was one of the best in America and it's, well, it was a, it was a six, not an eight or a nine. So it's, um, that's the best travelling book. And he's redone it since. You know, there are now... Well, the European edition is not out, but there are four editions out, Australia, Asia, Summer America, Winter America, and Great Britain and Ireland. You'd and, recommend buying them because they're not, they're not a... Well, they're, they're not... They're a big investment, aren't they? Well, they're not expensive, but they... I mean, the the original one that I got at Rod McEwen's bookshops are $800 now or something, but... Right. But, the, yeah, the current editions are... I don't know what they are. Eight, I don't know, they're, they're on his website. They're probably eight... Might, they might be $70 or $80, but... Worth it. Yeah, they're absolutely. You know, if you're traveling and and you want to know what you're going to get, then they're brilliant. Because that's where he will go to Painswick or Cleve Hill and say the Doak Seven. There are many sevens in England, you know, on the Doak scale, and it's because it provides architectural interest. Yeah. The other thing I'd just say is obviously spending a bit of time with Jeff Shack this week. You know, I quite like the way he talked about, you know, golf architecture for normal people. <laughs> yeah, that book's the terrific. whole idea that can you remember the holes. Can you walk your dog around it? You know, and would you and, want to play and, it every and day? Would you want to play it every day? Yeah, and it, and that that immediately makes you start to look at golf courses. Things that jumped into my head immediately would be places like Blackwell or West Byfleet, places that are just really great repeat places. Easy, you know, taxing on the brain, easy on the legs, and you know, I think there needs there's space to celebrate more of those sort of places. Yeah. You know, would you want to play Canusti every day or North Berwick every day? Well, yeah. a, there's, there is a, there is only one answer to that question. Yeah, you know, and, um, and it's not Canusti. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> a tremendous golf course and a great you yeah. know, test for the best players in the world. But would you want, you wouldn't want to play it every day? But you can play North Berwick every day, and that's mm. what happens with the headliners is people don't play them every day, or very few people mm. do. Yeah, and you could play. You know, there are, there are, you could play what? Well, you could play Woking every day and Swinley Forest every day, and there's so many golf courses over here that you could play every day. And as I get older and get shorter, and you know, Metro, where I'm a member in Melbourne, it's like this course is really long. I mean, I mean lots of three woods now. So like, this is a pain in the ass in three woods. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm like, well, go forward, but I don't want to go forward. I want to play off the back and you know, see how bad <laughs> I'm getting. You're as guilty as anyone yeah. in that sense. Yeah, yeah, and um. I played some of the other day where actually a lot of iron shots. It was like, well, this is funny. The iron's in the green. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So, and, you know, going back to the start, Kingsley was a, you know, I didn't know what to expect there really. I knew Mike had done it, so I knew it was good, but I was blown away by how good it was. You know, and that's a course you could play every day. It was brilliant yeah. and great fun. And so lots of wild shots and great land and great routing. And, you know, so the essence of great architecture, really. Well, Mike, I think we've kept you for long enough on this podcast. 
But once again, a thank you for being honest. We'll probably, we'll probably kept the list. He's only halfway through. He's, he's, this man is like the Alan Wicker of golf. <laughs> well, do you know, actually, I heard, I, 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 I was hoping to get it in, and actually, that's just jogged my memory. This week, we should congratulate you because you've been made an honorary member, haven't you, at RNGC? Oh, Dan we did, Devon, yeah. Was, um, yeah. Which is Dan Davis's course. Dan's a very good friend of the uh, of the podcast. And, you know, he's he described Mike as the living patron saint of golf. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's being very immodest, but he's being very modest, not immodest, but... Um, he, he kindly comes and does these trips, which he signed up for when we started the partnership. And then just to add to his woes, we got here and then Royal Haig said, actually, if the mics are around, can they come over with Frank and do a brainstorm? So we said, oh, would you mind going to Holland as well? <laughs> just to add in. So you've got that as well. Yep. So straight after the Addington, he's very kindly. Yeah. He and Mike are both going to see Hayes. It's really and, tough on the road. Like jokes aside, there's a lot of time on the road there. Yeah. There's a lot of like... This week you're in a flat, so nice, yeah, it's nice digs, but it's it's not home, is it? And it's a lot of time on the road yeah. talking to idiot podcast hosts and also all and sundry. You know, well, when we set tough. CDP up, I remember the, uh, the phone conversation when I obviously Clates and I were discussing things and we were sort of negotiating and well, how's it going to work? And there's a great bit where I said to Clates, well, you do realise, you know, you're going to have to come and live over here for two or three months in the summer. Is that all right with you? And there was this silence. And then in the background, I got Mrs. Clayton and said, may not be for him, but Mrs. Clayton will be there. I can't do the accent, sorry. Anyway, but uh, Mrs. Clayton said it was fine. So we got the yeah. we got the approval from the real boss. Right. But it is a, yeah, I mean, this trip's been crazy. I'm through America and I'm over two or three nights. At, at this is the, the worst one so far, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. been brutal. Yeah, trains and planes and all of in cars and just, yeah. And I, I packed like an idiot. I can't believe how much stuff I bought that I didn't need. I should have just bought... <laughs> And you don't take the clubs, do you? Because you no. said it's so much hassle. It's such a pain to travel with the clubs. I, I should have bought three pairs of navy pants and um, <laughs> navy pants. And I, the colour specification yeah. of his pants. We've got all the CD. We've got the suitcase here with all the CDP gear in it. And I think what we'll do next time is just leave a suitcase yeah, here for do you. That. You don't yeah, take no. clothes. It's crazy. Yeah, I just bought way too many clothes, which was stupid. The uh, we're CDP very lucky polo neck is a very very nice little piece of merchandise. Yeah. Well, if you play your cards right, Samuel, you can have one. How about that? Yeah. I might get done for bribery, but you know what I mean. You can certainly And we have, have a very strict anti-bribery and corruption policy oh, right. in cookie well, jar. Yeah. But if I'm spotted out wearing it, then our listeners will be able to determine that maybe I've accepted said bribe. Um, well, you know, a huge thank you for joining the pod and and for everything you guys do. Like, it's, it's busy. You guys have had a, a fantastic time of it late you've taken on some really exciting projects we're having a lot of fun we really are and um you know he's not here now he's actually on the course but sam cooper's doing a wonderful job he's yeah. our he's our other sort of missionary out in the field uh Clates is the flying missionary he's the one who's here and um no we're really lucky and you talk about you and Clates have been talking about these courses that are fun to play not mm. you know not perhaps the the, mo the most punishing um, and if you look at our client roster now in yeah. this country, Clates, you know, we're really lucky. Think of the people we've got starting in the very north. I mean, you and I were up at Fraserburgh and Spay Bay, which yeah. are very exciting. Monofeith, where you've already been a few times. And then you went, of course, down to Southerness on the way down here. Southerness was good, yeah. It was a, well, it's not a surprise because you know that it's going to be good because it's, 
If it's good, it's good over here. If it's bad, it's bad. But yeah. like anywhere, bad golf is but you just, bad you, English golf is horrendous. The worst golf, the worst. But um, <laughs> steady on now. Yeah. You know, no, it is. No, there's some. I mean, <laughs> there, there would be some real stinkers from the sort of sixties and seventies, yeah, and and it's overgrown yeah. and underloved and under, and yeah. So. yeah. I came for Elvis at a golf course at the tour school last year, and literally every single hole. And it didn't take me long. I said, "Oh, this is course to be better backwards." Every single hole, every single hole, every single hole on the back nine would have been better if they'd started on the 18th green and gone around every hole backwards. That would have been better. Now you know we're doing Spay Bay backwards. It's yeah. also no, but then and of course Wallasey, which you spent a lot of time at this week. Yeah, Wallacey, that's going to be a lot. Wallasey should be the best course in England. That's a huge call. Go. Should be the best course in England. And we're very excited. There's a lot good? of work to be done there. Yeah, but, and even the stuff down south, the fun things, New Zealand. I mean, what a fun place to play golf. You know, it's yeah. just wonderful. And but that's a classic one on the Chack scale, New Zealand. It's you know very very walkable. You can take it's dog friendly. You can remember the holes, and you could play every day. You could grow so old on New Zealand, couldn't you? Yeah. And I think there's there's so there's a thing in courses that you can grow old playing on. You know, I think that's a yeah, which is not metropolitan. <laughs> yeah, that's Go what we seem to be hearing. So, the good, so um, quickly, Lucas Michelle, who's kind of Sam's equivalent, not really, not, not Sam's equivalent, but he work, works for us in Australia. He won the Portsea Open, which is not a big deal to anyone over here, but 72 whole tournament. He was running 11th or 12th on the, is the 11th or 12th ranked Australian amateur. And the top 10 get in the Asian amateur at Royal Melbourne at the end of the year. So he was very keen to play in that. And he wasn't sure whether he was going to play because... He knows how the rankings work. And one of the kids, Harrison Crow, who played this week at Hoylake, mm-hmm. is going to turn pro. So he would have gone to 11th. And if someone had played badly, he might have gone to 10th. So his choice was, well, perhaps I shouldn't play because if I don't play well, I'll go down, not up. So, well, you don't deserve to play if you don't... You, know, you don't deserve to play at Royal Melbourne you can't go and win the ports he opened. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he said, you're right. So he went... It goes up and he's gone and won. He, he won by three shots. In. Yeah, he played really well. So When did he win that? Overnight. Tonight. Oh, you know, we just posted it. Oh, he's just done it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So he'll be playing the Asian Amateur at Royal Melbourne, which is a... Huge congratulations to Lucas. Very early guest of the podcast. Bruce was at... Well, we're missing him. I sent him a note this morning because we haven't got Lucas, we haven't got Urian, and we haven't got Gonzalo. Gonzalo wouldn't come. I love this. He said, I stay in Spain because I have to vote. It's an an election. So he said, I can't come. He's very patriotic. Got to vote. And Urin's got a young baby he has to look after. So we're missing him too. But those three, I sent them a note saying we miss you. But otherwise, we've had everybody else here. Anyway, so Lucas is, which is essentially an R&A event. It's an R&A in the US Masters, right? The Masters and the R&A run. What, the thing? Asian Amateur? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you win, you get in the... So there's a number of people there. playing in this that are qualified to it. Yeah. Yeah. playing this week. He, he won yes. the Asian Amateur at yeah. wherever it was, Singapore last year. I don't know where it was, but... Uh, we wrote, we wrote a piece on it, but I've slept since then. Or yeah. in fact, I've not slept enough since then. But that, yeah. that's another. So you've got point two potential bags for the Open next year if they qualify. Yeah. Well, Elvis, if he stays. Elvis. Elvis well, Elvis. Lucas, yeah. yeah, Elvis yeah. and Lucas. It'd be well. quite hard having Clates on the bag, wouldn't it, if you were playing in the Open? Because you know you'd be totally overshadowed by your <laughs> caddy. <laughs> no, not at all. You'd have you'd have all the Claytonites out in in support following yeah. the fairways. Yeah. Not with any any interest in how you hit in the golf ball, but only in what Mike had to say yeah. when he was out there no, and carrying my, the bag. My last my last caddy job will be caddying for Elvis in the Presidents Cup at Royal Melbourne in two thousand and twenty eight. Is Elvis the guy you playing the Hewitt with? Then I'll that... hang it up. Huh? Right. Is Elvis the guy you playing the Hewitt with? Is that the no no no, 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 no. Elvis Smiley? Elvis Smiley. Right, I've, I've... you you've been you definitely haven't had enough sleep, Sam. 
No, I thought you were talking about somebody who had it for. And it was because of something at Deal. I think I joined two dots about the Hewitt thing. So, so Elvis, is a, Elvis is the best young Australian player. He's been, he's been hopeless over here. He's been terrible, but he plays well in Australia. Finished eighth on the main list as, as a twenty-year-old. So his mum was a Wimbledon doubles champion. She was a right. tremendous champion player. Yeah, she she with her partner, who I think was I think was Kathy Jordan at the time, beat Martina and Pam Shriver at I'm pretty sure at Wimbledon. But uh, you know, she was a terrific tennis player. And Elvis is a he's going to be good, I think. Really good. You say hasn't had a huge amount of success over here. Is 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 that just timing and form yeah. or is that actually adapting to uh no i just think it's very similar isn't it with like the fast fast ground as it would be in sort of melbourne sandbelt and over there no well, he played the bmw which is soft and you know he should, yeah. he should have played well there and he played like no good at all so you should tell the story about the rough at deal when he got in the oh, rough yeah well yeah, clueless i mean jeez well i thought we were gonna stop oh, that's right um i'm came for obviously a deal and he hits it in the rough at the I can't remember. On the, we turned off the tenth. It was, it was on our first night. It, it was thick and wet, and you you never see grass like in Australia. You n- it would never, literally, ever play on a grass like that. And he gets in there, and he, and the ball goes like his left hand. The ball goes sideways, right across the fairway into the rough on the other side. And then he walked over there and did the same thing back. Jesus. Across the other, and then he did it again. He said can't believe it the, the, I'm trying to control the face and the club just keeps twisting in my hands <laughs> why I didn't said, you have the sand on out what's going well, on well did. you did oh right I said you do know you've got to grab it as tight as you can and hang he said what do you mean I said you've got to grab you've got to strangle the club to, yeah, know, otherwise yeah. it oh well it's not a good time to find out when you're at the qualifying at the open it cost you two double bogeys shit <laughs> unbelievable so, and this is I mean so, Billy Longmere was walking around in awe of the man striking yeah, I mean in awe of He's really good. But it was like, you know, there's a, I mean, that's just golf 101. But, and you really, you, know, you assume that, you know, when you come over, you get in the heather and you get the long grass. And, you know, you assume that people know that. But he had no idea that you had to, obviously, you've got to strangle the club. You can't, it all just. I mean, luckily, I strangled the life out of it <laughs> yeah. from tea to green, yeah. irrespective of the rough. But when you think about it, yeah, you, but it's so instinctive when you play in links over here that when you're in these things, you've got to, you got to hold on for dear life at certain times. You can't. Yeah. But you need yeah. thirty years of being gales at the Hewitt to learn. You see, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But one of Elvis's things is, you know, light grip. You can see he grips the club really lightly and you know gently, and doesn't doesn't have a. You know, and he just. So anyway, they're the sort of things you learn over here. And but I think you've got to learn to play the tour and learn to get comfortable and learn to. And of course, you know, the, we haven't spoken about live. Thank God, because I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen. I don't think anyone's got a clue what's going to happen. From so Jay, Jay Monaghan's got a clue, no. yeah. But the best thing that could ever come out of this live thing is that they force a merger between Asia and Australia, which mm. is you know it's ridiculous that it hasn't happened by now. And partly it didn't happen because the older Asian players would come to Australia and they'd go to Royal Melbourne and the Greens were like you know, completely opposite of what they were and they couldn't play them. But we need to, you know, for kids like Elvis, they need somewhere to start, and the Australian tours too small the asian tours uh, it's bigger because liver put money into it but you know there, there were big gaps in it and they, they need to they need to put drag those two tours together and create one tour down there so kids like that have got somewhere to play 
And then the Adelaide yeah. event was huge, wasn't Adelaide it? Adelaide was the live event. Adelaide was crazy because we're so starved. We don't see these. Cars. Yeah, you totally. You never. You got we never no see access to them. Yeah, you know, and now you know it's the the problem with the game now is these guys make so much money that you can't afford them. You know, Ricky Fowler wants to go and play in Australia. You're going to want two million dollars. We're just not worth two million dollars. Good player, but Tiger was worth three million Australian dollars in 2009. But the problem with that was that if Tiger was said I'm worth three, then Phil said, "Well, I'm worth two. Well, mm. no, if, if Tiger said I'm worth one, then Phil, Phil could only go at seven hundred. Well, seven hundred is realistic, certainly for Australia. Two million is not. So none of these guys are you can't afford any of these guys because they all they're all making so much money. Why would I go to Australia to play? Well, you might get to play a great golf course, but they don't care. So when Liv turned up and all these, you know, DeChambeau and Johnson and Kepka and all these guys came down, I was like, wow, we get the season. Yeah, good. yeah exactly. You know, so it was no wonder that, you know, that the crowds were nuts. And, uh, you know, I suspect that will be part of it. My, my reticence with it all, I really got no interest in talking too much about Liv, but it's, it, it, it really feels like anything that's not played in America defaults to the UAE, which is just, yeah. apart from being a fairly convenient time zone to watch golf from if you're in Europe it's actually a pretty uninteresting place isn't it but we digress I'll tell you what one thing I must do in deference to you Get I mentioned all those fun clients <laughs> all those fun clients and I forgot to mention Blackwell's one of our fun clients and as you played there how could I not mention Blackwell so that's my you last you guys word. have a great client list like it's a really it is a smorgasbord of really great fun architecture isn't it We're very you know, like you say Wallacey yeah. Addington is just I mean Addington is just looking so good um, so much respect for what Ryan's doing Blackwell is obviously the greatest course in possibly the world it's right up there with the Cypress points of the world in my opinion and you, you know you places like Spay Bay look so exciting so gentlemen on to the final round of the Open but thank you very much and uh, Clates can you say adios for us we always sign off the pods with adios uh, adios boys enjoyed it we'll um, see you all next year and we'll be back and we'll be into Spay Bay good stuff watch this 